0: Welcome to Eat, Drink, Innovate, the podcast about food startups, innovators and entrepreneurs who are making their mark in Australia's dynamic food and beverage industry. The future of food is happening here. Come join Susie White at the table
1: to eat, drink and innovate. Hi, everyone. I'm Susie White, a product innovation coach, author and podcaster in the food and beverage industry from Melbourne, Australia. Today, I'm talking with Tom Griffith. He's the co-founder with childhood friend Emma Welsh of Emma and Tom's. It's a premium natural juice and snack bar business, which uses minimal processing, all natural ingredients and no added sugar to boost people's health and vitality. In this episode, you'll hear how Emma and Tom stepped out of international careers with a lot of knowledge about investment banking, ag science, cordon bleu culinary, and financial marketing, but very little about premium juices. However, their commercial acumen and desire to run their own business helped them negotiate the rocky path of bottle moulding, co-manufacturing, and distribution building, to create the successful Emma and Tom's drink and snack business that's proudly Australian owned and operated today. And in the aftertaste section, I share with you the many different types of entrepreneurs there are and the one that you really don't want to be. So welcome to the podcast today, Tom.
0: Thank you for having us on.
1: So, it's always great to set the scene. Do you want to just describe for the listeners, what do you do in the business and how do you describe what Emma and Tom's, the business does?
0: Sure. Well, currently, I've um, we've employed people um, around my former role, which has been good. So, we have got people who are actually qualified to do the, the three or four things I used to be involved in. Um, so, I used to do a lot of finance because of my background, um, the marketing and help Em with um, developing new products. Um, now I'm the chairman and I'm primarily involved in still communications, uh, strategy, which is obviously pretty important for us, and um, finance still.
1: Fantastic. And, and what do you describe your business as?
0: Well, Em and Tom Foods is a Australian-owned healthy drinks and snacks business. So we make drinks and snacks, which are available now in about 6,000 Australian outlets. They're all natural, they're all minimally processed, and there's no added sugar.
1: Now, I would love to go back. I'm going to ask you to step back about 15 years. Let's talk about the startup journey you went under as a co-founder with Emma. When did you decide this is the business you wanted to start?
0: And what were you doing just before then? Look, I'm looking at my diary now, and on Sunday of this week it says um, Emma and Tom's Day One and that was the first time Emma and I got together to do anything about starting what was to be named eventually Emma and Tom's. And we went and took, he talked to a, a great bloke, a raconteur called Gary at the Rathstown Courtyard Cafe in Delhi and asked him what he wanted to serve his customers and why. That's how we started, understanding the market. And then I'm looking at Friday of this week and one year and a week later, Uh, We launched Emma and Tom's in 2004, which was four bottles of super premium fruit juice. And I suppose in that time, we had the ambition to start it when we first went and saw Gary. And then as we worked away, you get to the point of no return where you say, well, do we go or not? And we decided to go. I wanted to have a crack at running a business and starting a brand. Emma particularly liked the idea of the, um, the freedom to be able to control her own life. So we launched it thinking we're going to be launching a sort a of premium fruit juice company and it's since morphed into a whole range of well-being products from kefir and kombucha to fruit and nut bars, brewed iced tea made from you know, proper tea leaves, uh, no sugar-flavoured milk. So it's a, we now have the whole range really of, of um, healthy drinks and snacks.
1: I love that you have those milestones in your diary. You can track back to the day.
0: I'm the archivist. So, I've got all the photographs and all the dates.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Perfect for our discussion today. So, Gary was
0: obviously interested.
1: Was your background in Emma's, were you juice makers, producers? Is
0: that where you came from? No, I had no idea. I mean, I always joke that Emma's the right one and I'm good at lifting heavy things. Um, my background was in finance. I've been a CFO and a corporate advisor and a banker, investment banker um, in Australia, London and Paris. So, her, a whole variety of things. I've been a CFO of a startup and I've done a lot of work advising the French drinks conglomerate Pernod Ricard. So obviously, I had sort of branded drinks on my brain and I'd done a startup. And I saw this similar products while I was skiing in North America. Emma was much more suitable. She had uh, she done ag science at Melbourne University. She'd been a grain trader through Chicago. She worked at Uncle Ben's. She'd done an MBA at INSIAD in Fontainebleau in France and, and then also a London startup. And then she was currently, when I tapped her on the shoulder, she just left a role, which was running consumer marketing for the National Australia Bank. So we were late starters.
1: You were late starters and you were big corporate refugees. You'd come out of that world, which is, as you say, big businesses, big money, <laughs> lots of specialists to support you. Apart from talking to Gary, who was obviously interested in the juices, how did you even start? I mean, where did you go to, to first source your product and get that made?
0: We made it at home first after... Refining our recipes. We had focus groups, friends and family doing blind tastings. We obviously, you've got to start. I mean, Emma would say it's like pulling a thread. Um, you've got to get a bottle made. We wanted a square bottle. So we found a bottle manufacturer and they agreed with no fee. Normally it would cost you 50,000 bucks at least for a, a new mould to make a square bottle for us. So we just showed them a, a spreadsheet, all just totally made up, and they bought that. And then, of course, people who make bottles send bottles to bottling plants. So you go, where's some plants? And we started in the smallest, slowest, oldest line in Victoria. And we then had to refine the recipes by using commercial-grade fruit rather than the nice stuff in the Melbourne markets. And, of course, they tasted terrible. We had to reconfigure the recipes and work out whether you used frozen banana or banana that was aseptic or banana that was from the Philippines or Australia. And, you, you know, we obviously aim for Australia and you – have to find the best ingredients because if one ingredient doesn't taste quite right, it does mar the entire product, even if it's only a you know, 7% component. So we did then did, did trials in the factory. We found a designer, um, a mate of mine in Canada, put me onto a, a Melbourne guy of all things. We found a distributor. Uh, as it turned out, my best mate's stepbrother's girlfriend's stepfather bought a, dis- a distribution company and we convinced him with a PowerPoint demonstration to take us on. So we sort of had all the plates spinning. And then we got down to the sort of month before we were going to start and the bottling plant phoned said, we can't do it. And we said, well, why not? And they explained that obviously putting a, bo- a label on a square bottle has to be quite a precise a- action, as you-, as you can imagine. Otherwise, it would go around the corner. Whereas on a round bottle, you just wrap it around, the bottle spins on the line. And at 120 bottles per minute, our old-fashioned plant didn't have the sensing gear on the label machine to pick up the bottles as they spun past to wipe the label on. So then we found a contract labeler in Melbourne, which meant we were shipping air because the bottle was going from the bottling manufacturer to the contract labeler to the plant but but, but we you know it got us going and we launched and we had eight thousand bottles of juice, and of course we didn't have any customers <laughs> so
1: the magic spreadsheet and the magic powerPoint certainly did the job with the suppliers, and I'm thinking that w- that's quite unique also you sort of sticking to your guns about the the square bottle because a lot of startups I've spoken to get pushed into. Well, that's the stock that's available; just run with it. But you actually, really, from the get-go, push for a very original product, a very unique product.
0: Yeah, and that year of planning—not uh, just the bottle, but everything else that we thought about and decided upon—we are still re- um, referencing today, literally. So the planning was important. Actually, there was a juice company who can remain nameless who did just like you explained, and they took the took the round bottle and. They did a sort of a quick label with somebody who was their mate's friend, and it never got traction. So um, I'm not a brand expert, but that's obviously a component of brand and giving the product like, presence on the shelf. is a thing they call pop. If you look at, a, say, a bank of fridges in, in a service station, what's going to pop out at you, or does it all just blend in? So we've we've always been working on that, you know, the way to communicate. How do you get them quickly? It's hard.
1: And for you, getting that right early on has really stood the test of time. You still have that square bottle. It is absolutely part of the uh, Emma and Tom's brand identity. So unique.
0: That's right. And the labels evolved. We've probably had about three main forms of the label, but they've all remained true to the original idea. And everything's transparent. Even the cap is transparent. So our our main middle um, attribute is being straight up.
1: Let's talk about that. There's something not just in the labelling and the look of the product, as you say, that's really natural and real and authentic. How is it that you came to the brand name? I mean, you are the Tom in Emma and Tom's.
0: What's good about that is Emma and I walked down Berk Street and no one recognised us. So the brand doesn't require us to do a sort of a brand and a tap dance around it. We thought about it for months and we couldn't come up with an idea. We just had a tech wreck. We didn't want to be a, sort of a Yahoo or a Yelp or a Bling type throwaway name and we decided to use our weakness, being just little old Emma and Tom up against you know multinational companies as our strength and we called Emma and Toms with Emma's name first not due to chivalry but but because obviously the initials spell eat and we never actually used that but we did it that way so it's sort of something we could one day perhaps play with
1: I thought it might be too because Emma spaces out quite nicely on the top and has the same number
0: of letters underneath. It does. But no, no, that was the reason. So we decided to use our, uh, our strength and off, off we went.
1: And you're going to need that strength in that marketplace because let's talk about this. The juice marketplace, oh, my gosh, what a, what a fast-paced competitive industry. And you've got some positive forces. You've got fresh fruit growing in terms of freshness and natural and chilled. How did you find your first customers? Because you had, as you said, 8,000 bottles to sell. And if that's all fresh and natural, no
0: preservatives, you've got a really short shelf life on those too. Yeah, back in those days, we had 21 days. And you got a bottle every week. So we ran around Melbourne to a kit um, list of of um, retailers that we'd brought up and sold it in. But you know, it can often take three visits to get a sale. So lots of work involved. So today we've got three thousand of our own customers. That's you know, plus the ones that have dropped off the back. That's twenty thousand plus visits over fifteen years. We, we then stockpiled and we bottled the following week, and obviously didn't sell at all because it takes probably a couple of hundred customers to sell 8,000 bottles in a week. Um, so we've always decided to try and use our, sort of our witness at our strengths and I suppose be victors, not victims. So we found a, a, an event called Around the Bay in a Day where um, 12,000 cyclists ride around the, port the Bay. And that weekend, 12,000 cyclists got a free bottle of Emmer and Thomas with their lunch. So that was sort of our first marketing um, initiative. And it really worked, it, and so totally it sort of yeah, you know, it was a win-win. We'd done some marketing and got rid of our surplus.
1: Talk about opportunistic public relations, I <laughs> love it. Then they'll go to their local stores and ask for it.
0: Yeah, well, this is the thing. This is, this is why we focus on the on the route trade and initially, being the nice cafes and delis and things, because in fact I was in one last week and I said to the the girl, "You're one of our first customers and back in those days." was owned by two guys called Nick. And she said, yep, Nick's my dad. So you'd buy your lunch from Nick and he'd say, look, just try this great new juice from Emma and Tom's. So you try it, you like it, you haven't been advertised out, you feel you've discovered it yourself and you tell your friends.
1: Now, if you go that trade route, clearly distribution's a challenge because you've got a lot of small stores you've got to get around. How did you overcome that at
0: When we first launched, we were told it's all about distribution what we've worked out recently is that really, really, really is all about distribution. So we ended up doing it ourselves. We always find um, that inevitably you're better to do it yourself. We had a distributor, but they were you know, having trouble and they have other other goods they want to try and sell and they pay you slowly and everything else. So we decided to do it ourselves. And now we've got over 3,000 of our own customers in Australia. So we have vans and we have set runs and that's organised by a national sales manager, and then we have four different state managers who run all the vans. And actually, now it's up and running. It's quite easy, and it gives us a lot of um, flexibility. We're much closer to our customers, um, and it's also driven really the, the, the development of new products. Because you stop your van, you put on the handbrake, and you're wearing your distributor cap, and go right. What else can I sell these people? Because so they're going to buy, say, forty bottles of juice a week, but what about some bars? What about some tea? You know? Um, and then we go and do things like no added sugar-flavoured milk, which opens up a whole new pipeline, so that, you know, like schools and things, hospitals. So um, the vans have really been the core of the business. And to quote the guy who used to be our chairman, you know, you can deal with the supermarkets or big customers, and just because it's a day of the week that ends in Y, they can chuck you out, where at least the vans, it's a hugely um, diversified customer base um, and it allows us to do new product development without waiting on the supermarket to range it too.
1: I must be on one of your delivery routes because I see the emerald van pretty much every two
0: days. Yeah, well, this is the thing we actually think the vans—if you attribute a van with um, the same cost as renting a bus shelter to advertise in for a year—our van fleet we think gives us about a four million buck um, equivalent ad spent per year, which helps the brand and people feeling it's very local.
1: Absolutely. As I see it going around my local suburbs, I'm like, oh, there they are again. Let, let's talk about this. I love this idea, this shift of when you start up, it's all DIY. You've got to do it all yourself. Tell me about that shift when it was kind of you and Emma doing it all. When did you feel able to sort of start to scale up and get some team members to help
0: you? Yeah, it's funny because and the van started as being cash vans. It's actually a great advantage to us because, of course, we're paid on day zero rather than day ninety. So the cash flow there funded the the software and the and the PDAs for the vans and the whole setup. Yeah, I used to count the cash every day um, and take and take it to the bank. You know, I used to do all these roles that I did do, but you have got to do everything. And even today, you know, Emma's bright. And she's not, and she's not lazy. If she said she would do me a favor and drive this envelope to the airport, I wouldn't go. Well, why? I just go, well, obviously she can't do it. It's important, but it will do it. You've got to just get onto things.
1: And let's talk about your and Emma's roles because co-founders is tricky. That's a tricky relationship. Who does what and and how you decide, you know, the future of the company. How do you manage your relationship and what you each do in the business?
0: I mean, people sort of say, are you married? And by the way, we're not, we're not partners. Um, She's got a son and a husband and I've got two young daughters we put it down to three attributes um, because we, and we've all seen business partnerships break up. So we say it's down to three things, being trust, respect and a shared vision. And we make decisions based upon what's better for the company or the customer or the, the products, not for us. We treat the staff like they're equals. There's no upstairs, downstairs, it's just because our names on a bottle doesn't mean we walk around the office with any other attitude. So today Emma runs the business day-to-day. What I, what I do is talk to about probably two to two and a half days a week with Emma and Tom's. So it is quite a remarkable thing. It's lasted this long. We sort of sit in the office and chat rocks each other, but we get along fine.
1: It's time for a quick break now to thank our sponsor. When we come back, you'll hear how and why Emma and Tom expanded their products beyond natural juices. <laughs> I'd like to say a quick thanks to today's sponsor who helped make this podcast possible, the Monash Food Innovation Centre. They can help you fast track and de-risk your new products in the Australian market or export markets like China. Did you know that only one in 10 food and beverage products survive the first year of launch? That means nine out of 10 fail if you'd like to be one of those businesses that gets it right, then the Monash Food Innovation Centre can help. It has cutting-edge technologies, product development services and runs capability workshops to upskill business owners and employees in the art and science of food innovation. Whether you're a food startup or a large corporation, check them out at www.foodinnovationcentre.com and see how they can help grow your business through innovation. Welcome back. We've heard how Emma and Tom started making fresh natural juices and took back control of distribution with their own fleet of delivery vans. And more recently, they've launched a host of nutritious snack bars, protein and superfood balls. And so I asked Tom, how did they know what products to launch?
0: We look at we look at the market with overseas. I mean, Emma saw a certain nothing seed slice that had been made by a cafe and she basically bought it and reverse engineered it and had it made commercially. Um, Emma is very good at product. That'd be her sweet spot. Um, you know, we, we did an orange quencher, which is basically orange juice and a bit of water with some stevia. And that could be a bit bland. So want Emma then add some some Tahitian lime and a bit of passion fruit to it to give it that little bit of acid. So it's, it really often is the balance of the the sugars and the acids um, to give that sort of mouth steel. You've got to be not afraid to bin some things if they're not working that well because obviously if you've got, for example, 10 different drinks in a fridge and one selling at half the rate for the other nine, you're doing yourself and the shop a disservice. So you've got to rotate that one out and put a, a better one in. Just release some kefir waters, which might mean some other products go. Um, so you've got to be prepared to essentially cannibalize yourself to grow, to quote Steve Jobs.
1: Yeah, and having having that portfolio, as you said, in drinks and in snacks lets you do that, whereas if you were that one hit wonder, it's in, it's out, it didn't perform, whatever, you, you're sort of fighting to keep that territory the whole time. Let's talk about the snacks because that's a whole different beast. I can understand drinks, you'd you'd have bottle producers, you'd have labelling, you've had contract manufacturers all set up, then you go into snacks that's a whole different kettle of fish. Did you have to set up a whole product supply chain again for that?
0: So all of our products are made by third parties and we just pay a toll, you know, 20-odd cents when it is per product to have it made in their factory. So that's the that's their the overhead divided by how many our products per hour. It wasn't too hard. We actually put the our first life bars, they were called then, into the route trade and one of the Woolworths buyers saw them and picked them up and put them into Woolworths and they've been there ever since. They're one of the better-selling products in the Woolworths health food section people wouldn't buy two juices but they might buy a juice in a bar at a cafe they might buy a coffee at a bar um, it helps us during winter when obviously drink sales are lower than inside the middle of March um, and it's back to that thing where you're driving a your van and you you stop and think well what more can we sell these people and they would be a great thing for us you know a whole pallet of bars you know in a, a cost sense is worth sort of twenty thousand dollars and can sit the garage for a year and a half. A pallet of juice is worth about 2000 bucks, and needs to be kept chilled and lasted about two months. So if you look at a, on a freight-type um, distribution level, bars and snacks are obviously lighter and higher
1: value. It really balances out your portfolio and almost de-risks it. Let's talk now about um, how high is up for this business. What are some of your future aspirations for this, for this business and brand?
0: We want to be um, the leading Australian healthy drinks and snacks business. So notice my phrase there, the leading Australian, not Australia's leading. We have grand plans, of course. Um, We enjoy the business. There's a lot we can do still. We've got a a long, long list of new products and new um, avenues to pursue. Uh, We can do better in the grocery sector. We've started selling to Costco and Taiwan, which has been going okay. We're working a bit harder to do a a better job with our online sales and our, our shop. So there's a lot there. I mean, the, this whole area is obviously ripe for growth. The sector itself is consolidating quite heavily at present. Consumer tastes are definitely swinging more our way. We've just got range, for example, by um, Caltex Masterly, so their new fooderies, because they need to have an alternative, a, you know, a mainstream but healthy alternative to the, the sugar-filled multinational. So they've got to offer people the, the healthy choice. And we sort of figure... We're the sort of the, as good as homemade, you can't make it at home, but you can you can buy it in major retailers. That's sort of our, I suppose, what our products are. Our squeezed orange juice is as good as one you'd make at home. So it's a well-being, healthy, natural alternative to all the other offerings.
1: Yeah, and I've seen, you know, a lot of people get caught up on, particularly for their products, you know, who is it aimed at, who's your key target, who's your target market. Your products seem to have really broad appeal. I can't imagine many people not
0: wanting it. Is that part of the success, do you think? Our audience is that. We've always said that. I mean, I've got a 11-year-old daughter, but she's been eating and drinking it since she was, you know, two or three. My parents are elderly and they love us and they're in between. I mean, it's, it's people who, who want, you know, great tasting, natural products that aren't, once again, loaded with added sugar.
1: And one final question, Tom, because I'm conscious of the time. I do like to ask this of all my podcast guests, if you had a piece of wisdom or a word of advice for a food or beverage startup who's saying, look, I just, I just want to do what they're doing, what would, what would your advice be?
0: Um, I'll take advice because we've made so many mistakes and if we'd been a lot more informed along the way, we would have saved a lot of money and got to where we wanted to go faster.
1: Now that begs the question which I have to ask. What's the most helpful form of advice? Who do you who do you go get it from?
0: No one gives you the silver bullet, but you you get bits from everyone. I mean, we we had an advisory board for some time. We had a girl called Carolyn Creswell on that who started Karma's Newsly. We had a, a senior private equity professional on that, who's obviously seen a lot of companies. I think reevaluating having accurate information, um, and obviously whatever you do has got to be either new or better. And anything that you start now that's new, I think you've got to go for a very, very high margin. And with that high margin, you'll get some chipped away somewhere anyhow. But there's no point going into an industry where you know you're going to be making a skinny margin from the outset because it's just too difficult.
1: So firstly, go get the advice from many diverse sources. But then secondly, if you're entering the market, go unique, go differentiate it and go premium. Thank you so much for your time today, Tom. Before we go, I do want to say, is there somewhere if people do want to buy your products or find out more about yourself and the company, where should they be going?
0: The first port of call is the website, which is just Emma And And we're now in range nationally in Colesmore, in probably 4,000 plus local independent stores, cafes, delis, uh, supermarkets. So I would hope It's fairly easy to find. If not, um, we have a whole office full of very helpful people who can take a free call.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time today, Tom. It has been inspiring. It's great to hear about a really successful Australian business. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you. It's been great fun.
1: Aftertaste, the sweet taste of success. Thanks for sticking around. This is the part of the podcast when I think back on my chat with Tom Griffith from Emma and Tom's and reflect on a topic that came up in today's podcast. There's just so much I could talk about here, like Emma and Tom's beautiful, fresh, natural products and how they successfully tap into consumer demand for better for you products. Or the flexibility and protection they've secured by operating their own distribution route? Or what about how they've built an authentic, personable brand that features their own names? Or even how to de-risk a portfolio by expanding into adjacent product categories? However, I keep thinking back to Tom's early comment that he and Emma were late starters in running their own business. And I actually think that's played a big role in their success, because despite their lack of premium drinks knowledge, they drew on a wealth of commercial, financial, and product acumen that helped them build business forecasts, secure supply agreements, and shape a credible and viable business early on. And interestingly, research supports their experience. The entrepreneur success rate for older business operators is impressive. They have a 70% chance of making it through the first five years of their business versus younger entrepreneurs who have a 28% chance. And as someone personally who falls in the camp of starting their own business later in life, it's refreshing to find an area where age, experience, and wisdom is finally rewarded. According to Google, this puts me in a group called Older, Elder or Vetro Entrepreneurs. Mm, I'm not really sure I'm loving that title. Personally, I prefer the term generation experience. And so I thought today I'd take a moment to dwell on the cultural phenomenon of naming different types of entrepreneurs. There's quite a long list of the type of entrepreneurs you might have come across. Let's see if you recognize any of these. Firstly, there's the kid, youth, or studentpreneur. That's a young person who's starting a business while they're still at school. There's the mumpreneur. That's a working mother who's running a business. There's an intrapreneur. Those are people responsible for innovative ideas or initiatives working within a larger company. Effectively, they're not gambling with their own money. There's a philanthropreneur. That's someone who's supporting not-for-profit initiatives. There's a socialpreneur. That's a business that's operating for social impact and change. Or how about a multipreneur? Those are visionaries who are pursuing more than one venture simultaneously. Maybe you're a remotepreneur, a business that's operating remotely. Maybe you're a solopreneur running a one-person business. Are you an infopreneur, a business that's based on selling informational products? Perhaps you've come across online, e- or webpreneurs. Those are businesses running entirely online. And don't forget those entrepreneurs who sit within a particular category. They might be a techpreneur in the tech industry or a foodpreneur working with food and beverages. And how about, of course, the eco or greenpreneur? Those businesses built on driving climate change and environmentalism. And so I guess the thought I wanted to leave you with from today's podcast is it's never too late to start to be any kind of entrepreneur, but perhaps the entrepreneur we all want to avoid being is the wantrepreneur. That's the person who has the spirit and burning desire to be an entrepreneur, but never follows through on their dreams. I'd love to hear from you on this topic. What kind of entrepreneur are you? Did any of those hit the mark or does it really matter at all? You can give me a call on the Eat, Drink, Innovate podcast hotline. That's 613 884 and leave me a message. Well, that's it for this episode. Many thanks again to my guest today, Tom Griffith from Emma and Tom's for sharing his inspiring business story with us. And thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please be sure to tell a friend or a colleague about the podcast and join me next time to Eat, Drink and Innovate.
0: Do you have any suggestions about successful food or beverage entrepreneurs and innovators in Australia that you think Susie should be talking to? You can get in touch with her at eatdrinkinnovate.com.au forward slash podcast. And find all the show note links and innovation resources there too. And if you like this podcast, please help others discover it
1: by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts
0: from.